TheLogbook.com and Don't Give This Tape to Earl are brought to you by the BritBox channel on Amazon Prime. If you already have Amazon Prime, you can sign up for a free one-week trial of the BritBox channel featuring classic Doctor Who from 1963 through 1989, including the complete audio recordings of lost episodes and bonus features previously exclusive to DVD, along with brand new episodes of Red Dwarf and more. Thanks to BritBox, Amazon, and you for supporting TheLogbook.com. And don't give this tape to Earl. Mr. Announcer? The yum. Oh my god, thank you very much. I'll be alive. Oh my god, the city giver's dead. Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome back to the Halloween weekend edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. It's been a while. How you doing? What's up, Home Slice? Uh. <laughs> We've been gone for a while, and I know I said that the last time, but some stuff has been happening. Uh, there's been a stomach virus going around having its way with us repeatedly, all of us in the house. And things have picked up at work. Work has been extremely hectic lately. And there are literally nights that I walk in the door about, you know, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and I just hit the couch and go to sleep. No dinner, no nothing. I'm out. And it's kind of hard to produce a podcast that way. And it also, on the flip side of that, my kids have been over here a lot more lately than they usually are because it's that time of year where their mom, who is a mail carrier, is extremely busy and so she you know frequently calls me sometimes on pretty short notice and tells me you know you've got to uh you know you've got to take care of the kids tonight which you know I don't have a problem with that I'm never going to turn them away so that uh you know that also kind of puts a crimp in my podcasting style because without spending an hour giving you a walkthrough of my house Basically, let's just say that my computer setup and my recording setup is just on the other side around the corner from their bedrooms. So even if I wait until they are in bed, I cannot sit out here in a normal tone of voice and record shows. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Someone's going to get out of bed and say, Daddy, what are you doing? Well, I'm casting my pods hither and yon, son. So, yeah... There you go. And it, it, I feel an explanation is owed because it, I have lost a Patreon patron with all of these gap months that I've had in 2017. And uh, we'll talk more about this at the end of the show, trying to find the, the solution for this problem. And somewhere in the world, cats are acting up. You done? Good. I'm making a uh, slight format change to this show. There used to be a news section up front, and then it occurred to me that, you know, it's sort of like trying to run a monthly periodical in this day and age. The internet's going to beat you to it every time. So I think going forward on Don't Give This Tape to Earl, we're going to be watching what the cats are doing. 
that's that's the whole format now is just talking about cats. Now, um, we're going to divide it up into science fiction and goodies. So, let's get straight to the science part, shall we? So, a few science things, and with my proclivities, keep in mind the science section is usually going to be heavily tilted toward uh, space science. Let me see. This week, just the week that I'm recording this, we spotted what may be the first interstellar asteroid or comet. That means an object that originated from outside the solar system. And this came in almost almost on top of this, of our solar system. And it only got I think it only got within 100 million kilometers of Earth. Uh, it went inside the orbit of Mercury, basically between Mercury and the sun and just hung a sharp sharp turn in a different direction. Basically, it's like uh it's like what we do with space probes, giving them a gravity assist at Jupiter or something like that, except this got a gravity assist from our sun and one hell of a kick in the pants, and it's going now in a completely different direction than it was before. That's fascinating because the thing was already screaming in like a bat out of hell from a direction that just wasn't expected. And that really, that really kind of demands... I think the, the usefulness of this event, you know, it's it's scientifically fascinating, but it is useful in providing a jumping-off point for a conversation, and that is, what if this thing had been on a direct heading for us? We already are just now talking, not even doing, but just talking about redirecting stuff that's coming in from within the plane of the ecliptic, from within our own solar system, which is only going to be going so fast. Um, this thing was uh, coming straight on top of the solar system at quite a speed, something like, I think, 22 kilometers per second, which, you know, space is big. You're still going to have time, I suppose, to... Uh, done? Cats. Cats. You know, you're still going to have time to spot it, but this thing was spotted mere days before it made its closest pass to the sun, which was around the middle of October. Um, yeah, what do you do if that thing has a bullseye planted on the earth? What can we do? You know, aside from kiss our asses goodbye. <laughs> Um, I, I think this should kickstart the planetary defense conversation 
usefully. I hope it will. Juno has survived another perijove, which is its closest pass to the planet Jupiter. In this case, I believe it got within 2,500 kilometers of the, not the surface of Jupiter, because Jupiter doesn't have a surface, it has cloud tops. Uh, for all I know, it, you know, there's nothing until you get to the core, and that may be deuterium or, you know, rare elements crushed into metal, or it may be creamy nougat. I have no idea. My creamy nougat theory, by the way, has not found widespread acceptance in the planetary science community, but someday, someday. The emphasis on this pass was on the microwave radiometer instrument, which can probe through the clouds, you know, almost, almost like radar, except this is microwave, and so it can detect density, composition, it may be able to help them measure wind speeds all the way to 250 miles depth through the clouds, which, in the grand scheme of things, isn't really a huge amount of depth because you're talking about a planet that you could comfortably line up something. What was the figure? 33 Earths across it. So, you know, 250 miles, it's not a lot. But it will tell us stuff we didn't know before. I saw some news this afternoon before recording that we may be on the verge of announcing the first detection of a natural satellite orbiting an exoplanet, a planet around another star. So not only are we detecting planets around other stars, we potentially have detected the first moon of a planet circling another star. Um really want the James Webb Space Telescope to get up there on schedule and start looking this stuff up. Uh, last bit of science news, I miss Cassini. That's really it. In a year like this, with so much stuff going on on Earth that I wish I could forget, it's the absence of Cassini is very keenly felt. You know, it used to be I could get on Twitter or I could get on the Cassini raw image server and see all the latest stuff in raw black and white form, maybe grab a few of them, color filter them, try to come up with a true color composite, you know, all sorts of image processing stuff that, you know, some of us space nuts, especially your planetary science fanatics, love to do. And that's gone. And I miss it. I really miss it. On science, we're going to do a little bit of fiction, and obviously, obviously, since you've already downloaded this podcast and you've seen the little image that shows up on your iPod or whatever, you know that the uh, the main topic is Star Trek Discovery versus the Orville 
there can be only one. Unless you like both of them, in which case there can be two. Possibly more, because you're allowed to like more than one thing on TV. Before I go into these shows themselves, I have to... Say, I'm somewhere between amused and annoyed that we are reliving the 1990s Deep Space Nine versus Babylon 5 or Voyager versus Babylon 5 wars, which were confined solely to the internet and, you know, maybe a couple of college dorm rooms somewhere. But I remember at the time you had people telling you very earnestly, you know, you owe your allegiance to one or the other. No, you don't. You know, I didn't sign a piece of paper anywhere, you know, <laughs> giving my fealty to a science fiction franchise. Happily watch both of them in the same week. When Doctor Who's back on, I'll happily watch all three of them in the same week. The truth of the matter is, right now, we have two great shows on the air. I cannot tell you how much I love the Orville. It's kind of like working-class Star Trek The Next Generation. You don't have anyone quoting Shakespeare at you, or doing any grand speechifying. You know, this is why the Prime Directive exists. To complicate our plot. The Orville is more like a combination of uh, Next Generation and The Office. You know, it's a little bit of a workplace comedy. And yet it has a great big heart on its sleeve. And it has not flinched in terms of dealing with big issues and moral dilemmas and that sort of thing. And I love it for that. Um, Seth MacFarlane is not going to uh, knock Sir John Gielgud off his perch, much less Patrick Stewart, in terms of acting. But for this, he's fine. He's, he's just fine. And, you know, the real fireworks happen behind him with the supporting characters, you know, all of whom are a lot of fun. Just like Obi over there. Well, maybe not quite as much fun as Obi. Doing. Anyway, so, and the other thing about the Orville is it has fantastic music. I, I want soundtracks from both the Orville and Star Trek Discovery by Christmas. Okay, labels out there in Trada, La La Land, Faris, I don't care. Get me soundtracks to these shows, because the music on them is amazing, especially the Orville, because they are... The music is not in on the joke, I'll put it that way. The music plays it dead serious, and that's great. And it's, you know, it's a return to kind of the, the John Williams style of sci-fi scoring, but not quite. It's a little bit more economical and, you know, not quite as marching band, which, you know, a lot of John Williams stuff is very marching band, especially from the 70s and 80s. And, therefore, yeah, the, the music is really great on them, on both shows. Star Trek Discovery has really impressed me more and more with each succeeding episode. At the time I record this, the most recent episode, the most recent installment, 
was one which did some Rogue One level prequelizing in terms of adding to a character from the original series. The thing about Star Trek Discovery is it happens ten years before James T. Kirk's command of the Enterprise. So while Kirk is a lieutenant somewhere, all the stuff that's happening in Discovery is ongoing. And that makes it really interesting. In fact, one of the recurring characters in Discovery is a Vulcan named Sarek, who happens to be Spock's father. Well, he's also the adopted father of Michael Burnham, the main character in Discovery. And in this most recent episode, uh, they summoned up the the mythology of a classic Trek episode that revealed that Spock and his father had not been on speaking terms for a long time because his father disapproved of Spock's enlisting in Starfleet. Well, now we find out there's another side to the coin. Sarek basically had two kids, his son and an adopted daughter, and the Vulcan authorities would only let one of them into the Vulcan equivalent of Starfleet, and Sarek had to choose. And so, you know, faced with an impossible choice, in fact, he even says in the show, this is an impossible choice, he opts for Spock to enlist in the Vulcan fleet, only for Spock to defy his wishes and enlist in Starfleet, which is a data point we've known for 50 years. And Spock's decision basically leaves Michael Burnham empty-handed. And Sarek is angry and guilty about that. This takes something that was established 50 years ago and completely reframes it, elegantly reframes it. It doesn't break the universe as we know it, and it significantly changes the interpretation and understanding of events we thought we knew everything about. That's great. That's great. I know a lot of people are still complaining, you know, it's not Star Trek because people are in conflict and there are people with less than honorable agendas and so on, you know, within Starfleet, when Starfleet is supposed to be the cream of the crop, the best of the best, you know, to which I can only say, uh, Ben Finney, Garth of Izar, Captain Merrick, uh, who's the guy in the, who's the historian guy in the episode where he basically turned some primitive planet into Nazi Germany because he was trying to show them how Earth had once kept the trains running on time. It was a model of efficiency, you know, I wasn't trying to copy the morality of it. Uh, there are lots, there's, there's a whole history of people in Starfleet in command positions who uh, haven't really been up to spec. So, um, yeah, it's that explanation, that excuse for disliking Discovery doesn't wash with me. There are many examples of less than honorable command characters in Star Trek history, especially in the original series. And so, it, you know, Discovery does not strike me as being an outlier. Perhaps we're not used to this happening with our crew that we are watching as opposed to 
it being something that some other crew did and Kirk and Spock and McCoy have to, you know, swoop in and clean up their mess. But in those terms, I'm really, I'm really enjoying Discovery a lot. I kind of wish the season was longer than 15 episodes, but they're kind of, they're kind of doing the modern TV thing. They're doing a, a Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad novel for television where you don't really know the full story until you hit the end of the season. Uh, everyone remember to thank Babylon 5 for that, please. And so we really don't know the full import of anything that's going on in Star Trek Discovery until we hit the end of the season, which is not going to happen until February or March because they are going to take a break on Discovery... Uh, I think we only have a couple of episodes, two or three episodes left before they go on break for the winter and then come back supposedly in January. It's, you know, it's kind of a weird way to roll things out when we're so used to Netflix dropping a whole season of Stranger Things or The Defenders or The Troll Hunters or what have you you know, at our doorstep to be consumed in any order, but you really should start with the first one. So this is this is Star Trek like we really haven't seen it since, oh, say the last ten episodes of Deep Space Nine. Almost twenty years ago, he said humblingly. Best not to think about it. I've also been watching a show on Fox called The Gifted. The Gifted is kind of set in the universe of the X-Men movies the 20th Century Fox has been producing. But it is a new story created out of whole cloth by Matt Nix, who was the creator and showrunner of Burn Notice, which was a show I enjoyed quite a bit. In fact, really, I wouldn't have tuned in to The Gifted had I not known that Matt Nix was writing and running the show. So far, it's a really interesting show. It's kind of like kind of like X-Men for family hour viewing. You know, they're not too bloody. Uh, they're not dropping F-bombs like apparently you can now on Star Trek because it's not on TV. It's on a streaming service over which the FCC has no oversight. And it's, it's just an interesting show. Again, they are setting it up. It's only going to run ten episodes first season, assuming it gets to go more than one season, which I hope it does. I hope it catches on, because the characters are interesting. I, you know, I want to see them get to play out their full story that Matt Nix may have in mind. I've also been, I've finally, <laughs> finally managed to dive into The Tick on Amazon Prime, and it's, uh, it's everything I wanted it to be and more. Now, again, streaming service thing. I was kind of daunted when I watched the first post-pilot episode of The Tick on Amazon and was bombarded with S-words and F-words partway through. Yep, my problem there is that The Tick is... Yeah, that's really my, my eldest boy's sense of humor right there. He would love it. Now I've got to think twice about 
unleashing him on anything more recent than the Patrick Warburton series. So, there's that. Star Trek Continues has dropped its next to last episode. Now, what's great about this episode is is actually both halves of the two-parter because it is a two-part episode. So, you you know, we're in mid-cliffhanger. The series finale, both parts written by Robert J. Sawyer, who's a Hugo and Nebula winner, and definitely knows his Trek. He co-wrote an anthology with David Gerald about 12 years ago called Boarding the Enterprise that I did a copy editing and fact editing pass on for the publisher. They originally contacted me to just do, you know, can you just do the Star Trek fact check? And I wound up doing a full copy editing pass (laughs) did their jobs for them. And so far as I know, my name is in the back of the book in the more recent reprint. It definitely was in the first one. But anyway, Robert J. Sawyer had, you know, he co-wrote and co-edited that anthology of essays. And, uh, yeah, he certainly did not need much fact-checking from me. Thank you very much. And his, without getting into a lot of spoilers, this, uh, series finale for Star Trek continues kind of purports to be, you know, what would have been the series finale for the original Star Trek had it gotten to play that out, had it gotten another half season on the air. And it is revisiting one of the very earliest episodes, as well as some later episodes. There's some really interesting stuff going on. And, yeah, the cliffhanger is some big stakes stuff. And I can kind of see where I can see where they're going to start dovetailing this into what happened to put everyone where they were at the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I have some guesses about what happens in Part 2, and I live in fear for the lives of some of the ancillary characters that have been created just for Star Trek Continues that I've grown to like, you know, almost like they were on the original show. But we never see them once we get to the movies. Why is that? Could it be because they're dead? Well, the answer for one of them has already proven to be, yeah. So, go watch it yourself. I'll I'll post a YouTube link on the show page at www.thelogbook.com slash this tape. Star Trek Discovery has already been renewed for a second season. Uh, Fox needs to go ahead and renew the Orville now, please. I would consider that a fantastic Christmas gift. I will accept that in in lieu of a million dollars. Or I'll take both. I mean, you know, I'm not picky. <laughs> um, I watched a fantastic documentary movie called The Farthest. Uh, a, a somewhat cut-down version of this appeared on PBS in August. And basically, it is the story of the Voyager spacecraft, the mission from conception to where it is now. And it's just a great movie. There are a few parts of it that just bring a tear to my eye or bring a big goofy, 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 goofy grin to my face. 
because, you know, Voyager was my mission growing up. You know, I was aware of things like Viking, but you have to keep in mind, I grew up in The Gap. Uh, I was almost nine years old before they got a space shuttle into space. And, you know, I was born just a few months before the final moonshot of the 20th century. I really like to qualify that as, as the, you know, final moonshot of the 20th century, because I like to think that we might go back. Anyway, the farthest I cannot recommend highly enough for you, it should be out on DVD anytime, and you can bet that when it is, it will be in the logbook.com store. So we come now to the goodies, where I talk about all of the weird and wonderful stuff that I have accumulated <laughs> in my various hobbies. It seems like I just collect stuff. I collect dust. Uh, they have porgs now. I like porgs. Everyone should like porgs. <laughs> okay, now... These things have started showing up in stores. The, the manufacturer claims that they will be in uh, Target or Walmart or on Amazon. So far, I've only found them one place, and that is Cracker Barrel. A friend of mine in Texas said that he had found these his local Cracker Barrel. And so I walked into the Cracker Barrel in Alma, Arkansas, expecting, you know, no, they're not going to have these. No, they had these right up front. They're called the World's Tiniest Arcade Games. The marquees actually light up. They do look like little arcade cabinets. They have little, little screens. Very little screens. Um, the eye strain factor on these is insane. I can't play one for very long before my eyes hurt. And they do look and sound like the real thing. And it's got a little short attract mode that uh, plays out. And then yeah, there's a switch on the back that you can actually just turn the thing full off. Nothing will start the game. If you leave the switch on, then after it goes dormant, you can walk up to it, hit the button again. And, you know, it lights up the marquee, it turns on the screen, starts the attract mode. The four games that they have released so far in this series are Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and... Galaxian, Galaxian. Uh, all of them play and look very true to the original arcade games as far as the display on screen. Uh, Space Invaders, they took some liberties with the cabinet style because Space Invaders did not have... You know, Miss Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Galaxian were all Namco games, were all Midway games. And so they had that kind of body style to the coin-op cabinets. 
Space Invaders was a whole different beast, but it's, for the purposes of these, it is in the same cabinet, which I don't mind. I, I am really not going to hold their feet to the fire on accuracy for these, because they play so well. Now, the interesting thing about these is they have a little chain and a clasp on them, which <laughs> I don't know what that's for. Is, is this supposed to be my new key ring? Am I supposed to have this little Pac-Man machine dangling around, banging against my knee while I drive? Or am I supposed to hang these from my belt loops and just walk around? You know, with arcade games hanging off my pants. Hey baby, there's an arcade in my pants and it's set on free play just for you. No. Um... <laughs> so... That's, uh, they're 20 bucks each. As soon as Amazon has them, I'll put a link to them in the uh, in the logbook.com store, which means that you basically use that to order from Amazon, but the logbook.com gets cut of the proceeds, which certainly helps the site stay on the map. I mentioned they have ports. Okay. Let's see, uh, board games and card games, the people behind Extronaut, which includes D Professor Dante Loretta, who is the principal science investigator on the OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu. It's on its way to the asteroid Bennu right now. This is kind of fascinating. The guy devises and launches space missions, and, you know, in, in those doldrum months, between destinations, when it has gotten its gravity assist from Earth and is on its way to Bennu, he designs board games. Because, why not? I mean, what do you do when your space robot is going to be moving somewhere for several months before it gets there? Constellations is basically about building and recognizing the constellations in the night sky, almost as a navigational aid. But because, you know, even now, the... Modern astronomers will tell you that, you know, something is in this constellation. It, it's a point of geographical reference, at least right now, because the constellations will be almost unrecognizable in, oh, say about 10,000 years, because those stars will have moved in their galaxies. Our star will have moved in its galaxy. We won't be in the same place that we started out whenever these constellations were first named by the ancients. So, it's an interesting game. The, uh, the stars on the constellation cards, which are, are hexagons, by the way. They're interlocking hexagons. The stars glow in the dark. It's really cool. It's really cool. Um, you know, you kind of have to expose all the cards to light and then turn it off and play, I suppose. Uh, the, other, the other new delight in my uh, board game cabinet over here is called Bears vs. Babies. It is from the makers of Exploding Kittens card game, which means it's from the makers of the Oatmeal. Bears vs. Babies <laughs> is about bears and babies. It's actually about monsters and babies. You try to construct your creatures with all of these various options and appendages, you know, if they're compatible. And you try to build your army of bears and monsters and there's babies. And, you know, a baby card can be drawn, so that means there's another baby in the baby pile. 
Now, another card that you can draw will wake the babies, and the babies will attack all the players at once. If you have built strong enough monsters, your monsters will survive the baby's attack. Because, you know, babies just rip monsters asunder all the time. If your monsters are relatively weak, they have few appendages, the babies can do enough damage to destroy the monsters. So, <laughs> that's, that's really... It, it's, it's got the same humor as Exploding Kittens and the Oatmeal. It helps if you are a fan of that kind of humor. Otherwise, this game is going to seem like it makes absolutely no freaking sense to you whatsoever. Uh, Funko has come out with a couple of pops that I'm afraid I'm going to have to get. In fact, I've already got them on order. Uh, they did Tom Servo and Crow T Robot from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Okay, sold. M mine are not here yet, but uh, I will show them to you when I get them. I've seen other people's, and uh, yeah, do want. I wish they had. I wish mine had gotten here in time for Halloween because the thought occurs I could have duct taped them down like a cardboard, almost like a sandwich board. You know, you see people walk around with in the movies, the end of the world is nigh. And, uh, you know, tape them down to that so there's one on each shoulder. And, you know, basically your Halloween costume is Mystery Science Theater 3000. But they didn't get here in time, so... No. Have you tried the Porgs? They're exquisite. Alright, so, some final thoughts. Actually, before the final thoughts, <laughs> let, me, let me catch up with something I forgot to say in the goodies segment. Um, these little arcade games that have, they have little chains that hang from little clasps, kind of like key rings. I have decided really the best possible use for these things is Christmas ornaments. And the funny thing is, Hallmark had already done Christmas ornaments of a Pac-Man machine and a Galaga machine years and years ago. These you can actually play. These have a life away from the tree. Uh, they're almost, they're a little bit on the short side, they're almost perfectly scaled for your three and three quarter inch scale action figures. So your vintage Star Wars and your, you know, your modern Star Wars that are not black series, you know, the I guess the economy series, whatever you call them. Um, they're almost, almost perfect for that. So that's probably going to wind up being what I do with mine. I actually have them stuffed away in the cabinet with the rest of the Christmas ornaments until the tree comes out, which since I have two kids and they're already asking, when are we going to put the tree up? I'm going to fess up. As much as I hate walking into a store before Halloween and seeing Christmas crap out on the shelves, we're probably going to go ahead and put the tree up first weekend of November because kids, it's something fun for them to do. They like it. I like it. What's not to love? Worst case scenario, we can, uh, we can hang the porg from it. No. Okay, 
So, real final thoughts at the end of this podcast have to do with the future of this podcast. How should I proceed? Obviously, I'm having a hell of a time getting shows out on time, if not at all. I've gotten way behind on everything, incidentally. I mean, not just the podcast, but also the site. I've even further behind than the podcast is my book writing. I was hoping to have another book out this year. That's not going to happen. It'll be early next year at the earliest. And I do apologize for that because, you know, I have had people asking when is the next book out. The next one, by the way, will be Warp 3. It'll be the third Doctor Who guidebook. I was hoping to get either the 70s sci-fi book out this year or the, the British sci-fi from the American perspective book out this year. Um, neither of them happened. Neither of them is really close to completion because of so many factors. So how should we proceed? You and I. I have thought about getting a laptop so I could record in my bedroom or the bathroom after the kids are in bed. You know, which is how I used to do things all the time. I, mean, I cannot tell you how much of the escape pod was recorded in the bathroom after the kids were in bed. And yet, at the same time, I hate the thought of having to lay out enough money to get another computer, even even if it's a cheap one. It seems really silly. It seems like there is some kind of trick that I'm missing here. Maybe I need like 50 feet worth of USB extension cord. They even make USB extensions in that length. I don't know. But I've got to do something if I'm going to continue doing podcasts. Should I combine the two shows? I will be the first to tell you that while that thought has occurred to me, I'm not a huge fan of it. Because I, I know an awful lot of people who interact with me on the Logbook's Facebook page came by way of Select Game and stuck around for the sci-fi, and that's great. I'm glad you guys love it. Yeah, I really have not gotten as much audience engagement out of the site in years as I have from the Facebook page, and I don't know if anyone is even bothering to click back to the site content, but that's okay. It's just cool to be interacting with everyone and showing off the articles that are new on the site and kind of showing off what we do. Another thought that has occurred and has been mentioned by several people is that I could alternate podcasts every month. You know, do select game even-numbered months. Do this tape odd-numbered months. I, I, that almost seems like capitulating there. It's like giving up. And yet it may be the most realistic option. So... Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think. And uh, hopefully I can get back on the podcasting treadmill by the end of this year. Well, it may not be by the end of this year. Maybe early 2018. We'll see what happens. You can help support Don't Give This Tape to Earl by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook or buying thelogbook.com's original books or anything else your heart might desire through our Amazon links at thelogbook.com slash store. 